So good morning, everybody. How are you? Got that extra hour sleeping? We don't know if you slept an extra hour. What? Are you out there? Yeah. Do you know you're at the 1115 service? Uh, the fallback, the whole fallback deal is my wife's favorite. She says it's her favorite day of the year because it's the day that gives without asking anything in return. So we were putting our clocks back at like 4.35 o'clock last night. Very excited about it. So, well, uh, I'm glad you're here and welcome to the first Sunday of November. That's hard to believe, isn't it? It's crazy to think about. Uh, Tuesday is election day. How are you guys feeling about that? Apprehensive, ambivalent, you're freaking out. Planning a move to Canada, something along those lines. According to a survey done last month by the American Psychological Association, 52% of Americans admit that this 2016 election is just a huge source of, of anxiety and stress for them. And uh, just so you know, that percentage is spread equally across political party lines. People on all sides of the aisle uh, are just amped up about it. Uh, someone asked me re- recently how I was feeling I said, look, here's how I view it. No matter what happens in the election on Tuesday, on Wednesday, the sun is going to come up. God will be in control. And whoever the new leaders are, you and I, as followers of Jesus, still have to choose whether or not we're going to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. That's not going to change. And that's what ultimately matters most in this life. That's what God is concerned with. Here's the deal. Just as the election season is stressing people out, uh, so a high percentage of Americans admit to suffering extreme anxiety during the holiday season. So much so, 45% of Americans say they'd rather skip Christmas altogether. So with that being the case, a couple weeks ago, we, we started this series called Present. And in it, we're exploring what it is we can do to prepare ourselves for the holidays, rather than succumbing, succumbing to the, um, the usual stress of the season, to figure out how we can experience a greater sense of, uh, of peace and balance in our lives. Instead of rushing through and miss, missing the joy of it all, to find rest and to be truly present in the moment for our families and for our friends. And uh, while we admit there is no simple recipe to this, we're offering a few ideas I think uh, might help us. And this morning, I want to start off by considering the issue of expectations. Why? Well, because uh, unrealized ones tend to squeeze joy and peace out of our hearts like moisture from a washcloth. As William Shakespeare said, oft expectation fails and most oft there where most it promises. Here's my Ray K translation. Unrealized expectations, man, it's the root to all kinds of uh, stress and heartache. And I think most of us know that. And we also know on some level that life can be hard. We don't always get everything we expect. We don't always get everything we want, everything we think we need. There are no flawless holidays. There are no perfectly behaved kids, no perfectly cleaned homes, perfect stress-free family events. And to expect as much is just unrealistic. And to hold on to such expectations sets us up and others up for disappointment and, uh, and frustration. So rather than doing that, rather than draining ourselves with idealism, why not embrace uh, the coming season as an opportunity to experience God in the midst of our less than perfect world? In her book, Anxious, Amy Simpson, who's part of our Perfume family, she writes, most of us expect life to deal us a pretty good hand. When we don't get the sort of life we imagine, we worry and grow 
um, desperate to get back to what we thought was the original plan. When we expect ease and prosperity, we worry about losing them. Jesus promised, here on earth you'll have many trials and sorrows. When we expect trouble and thank God for blessings, our whole approach to life changes and we have few reasons to worry. And she's right. So I want us to think a little bit more about this, specifically about our expectations because we live in an age of unfulfilled ones. What do I mean? Well, in America, enough never seems to be enough. You know, there's always something more we want, something bigger, something faster, something nicer, something better, something newer, something prettier. And uh, our, our relentless pursuit of those things, of more and more and more of them, is just exhausting. It's killing us. Which is why Scripture has a lot to say about it. In the Old Testament, for example, the writer of Proverbs says, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. And Solomon, who wrote the proverb, uses two interesting terms here. The Hebrew term for better refers to that which is is pleasant, morally good, and beneficial to one's health. The opposite is, uh, is represented by the word turmoil, which could also be translated destruction, aggravation, chaos, and stress. So in short, Solomon is saying, look, it's more pleasant, it's more healthy, it's more beneficial to us to be content with little and live in reverence and honor of God than to have great wealth and live in unhealthy, anxious turmoil. Now, most of us realize that wisdom <laughs> runs, runs counter to contemporary Western thinking, right? Because today, most people would say, no, 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 no. It's, it's way better to have great wealth and de- just deal with the stress and the turmoil than to have less. Nobody wants less. See, our insatiable consumerism operates on this notion that to get the most out of life, you've got to set your sights higher and higher. You've got to work harder and harder. You've got to become greater and greater, get more and more stuff. Never be satisfied with what you have or where you are in life. In fact, a couple, a couple years ago, the Washington Post characterized this thinking by what they called the prayer of upwardly mobile Americans. And the prayer went like this. Maybe you've heard it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my Cuisinart to keep. I pray my stocks are on the rise, that my therapist is wise, that all the wine I sip is white, that my hot tub's watertight, that racquetball won't get too tough, that all my sushi's fresh enough. I pray my pricey cell phone works and my career won't lose its perks. My microwave won't radiate, my condo won't depreciate. I pray my health club doesn't close and that my money market grows. If I go broke before I wake, I pray my Volvo they won't take. Maybe you've heard that. Uh, uh, To be honest about it, I'm not a big fan. I'm not a big fan of goofy poems. Uh, But I got to say, this one accurately reflects a contemporary mindset. But here's the thing. This isn't just a 21st century issue. Uh, Back in 1835, the famed French sociologist Alexis de Tocqueville wrote a classic text titled Democracy in America. He spent a lot of time here. And he wrote this, it was basically an analysis and commentary on American culture. And de Tocqueville noted how a restlessness existed among our people, even in the midst of unprecedented prosperity. He wrote this, In America, I have seen the freest and best educated men and women in circumstances the happiest to be found in the world. Yet it seemed a cloud habitually hung on their brow. And they seemed serious and almost sad even in their pleasures because they never stop thinking of the good things they have not. 
Sad to say, not much has changed over the past 180 some years, primarily because human beings haven't changed. You know, in our humanness, we are, we are broken, sinful, selfish creatures by nature. I mean, think about it. You don't, we don't teach, have to teach our children to be selfish. They just are, right? I mean, the classic example this week, Halloween, right? Monday night. Halloween in my house, my wife is obsessed with big candy. We give away big candy. There's no little candy. I'm like, how about a grape or something? No, big candy. So we buy all this big, big giant bars and boxes of candy, and I'm lugging around basically uh, uh, these giant baskets of candy, and it's my job to hand the candy out. And inevitably, you know, uh, ding dong, go to the door, I bring out the big candy, and everybody's thrilled. It's the big candy house. Hey, they have big candy here. You know, it goes through the neighborhood. And then, uh, and then this, you know, the little kids will come up and they, they have their little angelic, uh, you know, outfits on and they'll, they'll say, trick or treat. Yeah, okay, here, have some candy. And then they'll like take one and they're looking at it, it's huge and they're like, wow, it's big candy. Can I have more? I'm like, what? No, you can't have more. No, that, that candy bar is going to last you a couple hours. going to zoom you up for a couple hours as it is. So just be on your way, little kid. You know, um... <laughs> Can I have more? No one has to teach us to be greedy and selfish and all that. It's part of our broken nature. We, we are creatures who fervently believe that we can have the best, we deserve the best, and we end up sad even in our pleasures because we're always thinking of the things we don't have. And an attitude of entitlement permeates everything, all of our expectations from a high standard of living to an existence that's free from all discomfort, pain, and suffering. I mean, we train ourselves. We train ourselves to expect the most, the best. The problem is, when those things don't materialize, we feel ripped off, frustrated, angry, anxious, and stressed out. And then all of that fuels our covetous nature. Last week, Dave Davis mentioned how he recently met uh, Dr. Sonia Lyubomirsky. She is a, um, she's a, prof- uh, a professor of psychology at the University of California. And she's, a, she's authored a number of books, uh, including this one, The Myths of Happiness. So essentially, she's an expert on happiness. And she says that current studies show that there's been no measurable uptick in America's happiness, Americans' happiness for the last 50 years. And so Dave was talking to her, and he asked her, well, why do you think that's true? And she said two words, social comparison. Social comparison, meaning what? Meaning that we tend to determine our personal value and worth by how we stack up against others. We are constantly evaluating who we are and what we have compared to what others have. And for the most part, it makes us miserable. Now, as I see it, Uh, Referring to this problem as social comparison is one way to describe it. But Scripture has two other words for it, envy and coveting. Envy is a feeling of discontented resentfulness and longing aroused by someone else's possessions, their personal qualities, their, their good fortune. Coveting is envy in action. In other words, coveting is more than just a feeling. It's a feeling that then leads to formulating and following through on a plan to get what you see and what you want. And a lot of the anxiety and stress we experience, especially in our culture, is a product of these things. Which is exactly why God warns us about them. 
Right? Isn't that true? I mean, think, think, back, think back to the Ten Commandments, for example. Number ten was what? God said to his people, you shall not covet. And then he offered some practical examples of things that inflame our sinful passions. God says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, ox or donkey, or anything else your neighbor has. Contemporary translation. Do not over-desire the luxurious homes that your neighbors have. The cars, the trucks, the gas grills, the clothes, the jewelry, the hot tubs, the Cubs tickets, you know, whatever. Don't covet their stuff. Along with that, God says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, i.e., don't allow the attractiveness of another person's spouse entice you to pursue an inappropriate relationship. God says, don't covet your, your neighbor's um, male or female servant. And just like today, having servants in the ancient Near East was a luxury. So essentially, God was saying, don't covet your neighbor's success, their wealth, their prestige. And in summary, I, th- I think God was saying to his people, look, sex, money, material possessions, they're not inherently evil, but they do all have a way of inflaming our selfish human over-desires. We envy, we covet. So what? Why is that so wrong? Why does God take such issue with it? Several, several reasons. For one, coveting indicates a lack of love and concern for people, family, friends, neighbors, whoever owns what we want. I mean, when we covet what belongs to another, in essence, we begin to view the object we long for as more valuable than its owner. I mean, if, you, if your neighbor's spouse, home, or wealth is the object of your desire, then your neighbor becomes the object of your disdain. Coveting is fueled by our envy. And when our passions to possess something shifts into full gear, man, you better watch out. Nobody's, nobody else's feelings, needs, family, relationships, or life matters. It doesn't matter. All we care about is getting what we see, what we want, which means that coveting is wrong because it leads us to violate some of the other commandments. I mean, when all we care about is ourselves and our needs and our desires and getting what we see, getting what we want, and doing what it takes to get it, we're very quick to disregard God's previous directives. And we're tempted to mistreat those around us, including our parents. We'll violate relationships, murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, all to try and satisfy ourselves just to get what we want. And it destroys healthy community but it happens every day. Another reason coveting is wrong is because it reveals our discontentment with what God has provided. Make make no mistake, there's no no denying this. When we covet, we're expressing dissatisfaction. It's saying, you know, God, uh, you haven't been fair with me. No, you haven't been fair with me. You haven't given me enough. You haven't given me what I want, what I deserve. I expect more. I'm entitled to more. I'm entitled to a romantic relationship. I'm I'm entitled to a nicer house, a higher status in society. I deserve a better job, a bigger salary, a larger home, a cooler car, nicer clothes. You've shortchanged me. I want what that person has. Now, some of us would never verbalize those thoughts. We may not even be consciously aware of their existence, but the fact is those attitudes and ideas underlie every covetous thought, every word, every action. It is saying to God, you haven't been good enough to me. You haven't been generous enough to me. I want more. And it's an arrogant, selfish, thankless slap to God's face. 
And then the final reason coveting is wrong is because it, it always ends in exhausted emptiness. Again, in the Old Testament, that's what Solomon is getting at. Solomon considered one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. Solomon says this, he writes, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. And he says, chasing, chasing after more and more and more of it is like chasing the wind. I.e., coveting leads to an insatiable pursuit that never finds meaningful, lasting fulfillment or satisfaction. It doesn't. It just leaves us tired, cranky, and empty on the inside. And unfortunately, Americans are a prime example of this. I mean, personal greed has pushed us to societal fatigue. We are a worn-out people because the the never-ending quest for more and more and more is driven by this illusion that happiness comes by way of material things. I mean, America may well be the wealthiest nation on earth with an abundance of resources and amusements, luxuries, uh, and sensual delights, but we're not happier or more fulfilled because of it. We're not. Never in history has any one culture ever experienced such physical comfort while at the same time such psychological and spiritual misery. And it's tragic. And I don't know, maybe some of you are are here because of this very thing. You've come to a place in your life and you're like, man, there's got to be more to my existence than this. I mean, there's got to be more than living, sleeping, working, shopping, and dying. You've been doing that for a while. You've been going full full bore, working harder, earning more, spending more, acquiring more and more stuff, and you're just tired. You're you're, you're burned out. You're empty. And the over-desire to possess hasn't led to any happiness or any sense of true fulfillment, and so you're wondering if, if there's another alternative. And the answer is yes. The alternative to, to covetous living is for us to choose contentment. I mean, which is really what the Tenth Commandment is calling us to, right? If you think about it, expressed in a positive way, God says to those people, be content with what you have. Not with what your neighbors have, with what you have. With what you've been given. Jesus put it this way. He said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, because life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions. More is not necessarily better. He stressed the same idea when he, when he taught his followers how to pray. He says, pray this way. Our Father in heaven, give us today our daily bread. God, give us just what we need and help us be content with what we've got. And I don't know how you feel about it. I mean, when it comes, for me, uh, contentment sounds good. It, it sounds good to me. It sounds, it sounds, it sounds right. It sounds healthy. And I'm guessing most of us would like to experience it. But how? In some respects, that's complicated, (laughs) especially for flawed human beings like us living in a consumer-oriented, consumer-driven, consumer-obsessed culture. And so, as I see it, I I see contentment as, as, as a process, a process that begins when we finally realize that the true meaning of life is not found in what we own, but in who we are. Namely, men and women created by God in his image. Every single one of us. No exception. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done, what you look like, walk like, talk like. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that the fact that we're sinfully rebellious creatures. God loves us anyway. He's proved it. 
For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The, the Apostle Paul reminded those in the early church, he said, remember, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we're perfect people. Not while we're working to be good enough. No, no, no. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. See, contentment is found not in, not in what you own, but in realizing who you are. People loved by God. It's found in understanding and admitting that all the stuff we acquire in this life can't take it with us to the next. We can't. Not our cars, not our iPhones. Imagine that. No iPhones. iPads, houses, boats, clothes, nothing. We can't take nothing with us. It's why Jesus uh, asked people in the marketplace, and by the way, he spoke a lot in the marketplace because he always got himself in trouble in the temple. The religious people didn't want to talk to him. So he went to the marketplace where everybody was just like today, scrambling for coin, scrambling for a living, trying to get more and more and more. And Jesus went to the marketplace and he said to people, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can any of you give in exchange for your soul? Everybody knew the answer, nothing. Because God's not interested in your money or your possessions. He's interested in you. Contentment requires we be aware of what we look at and what we fixate on. You know, for the most part, envy and coveting begin when we see something we like, something that's appealing, and we fix our gaze on it, and we begin to move toward possessing it. You know, how do we combat that? And at the risk of sounding oversimplistic, I would say we combat it by consciously looking away and moving in the opposite direction. And as we move in that opposite direction, ask ourselves questions. The right questions, like, do I really need this? Will I feel better after taking possession of it? And what are the consequences of getting it financially, physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually? Contentment requires we repent of our ingratitude and thank God for all that he's given because the fact is, he's given each of us more than we need and definitely more than we deserve because ultimately we deserve nothing. Everything is an act of grace. Paul wrote to Timothy, a young pastor in the early church. He said, he said keep in mind, Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's a good thing. He says, we brought nothing into the world. We can't take, any, we can't take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Be careful. Be careful. And then finally, contentment is found when we recognize what we're really searching for and begin pursuing what truly satisfies. Joy Davidman uh, was an atheist, um, became a Christian later on in life, and then happened to marry C.S. Lewis. And uh, she was also a very brilliant woman, a, br- a, 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 a great writer, uh, although that gets lost, you know, in the shadow of Lewis. But she wrote a book uh, one time titled Smoke on the Mountain. It's bas- it was basically a treatise of the Ten Commandments. And, and in it, she addresses the issues of envy and coveting. And she said something very fascinating in there. She says, Christianity is everywhere paradoxical, everywhere too difficult for simple black and white thinking 
but nowhere more so than in its doctrine of worldly goods. For they are good things, and yet we must not long for them. They are to be enjoyed, and yet we must not make that enjoyment our goal. If we have them, the best possible thing we can do with them is to give them away. If we don't have them, we may expect to get them, but we mustn't worry about it. It seems we're told not to desire what by our very natures we cannot live without. The paradox is easier once we remember that the test runs, seek ye first the kingdom of God, once we remember ends and means. Do you get what Davidman was saying? She was saying, look, Christianity affirms that there are good things in life. There are a lot of good things in life, and wanting good things and enjoying good things and looking for good things is fine. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. But if possessing more and more and more becomes your goal, you're better off just giving it all away. Because true meaning and contentment come in seeking God and his kingdom first above all else. He alone satisfies the deepest longings in our human hearts and our spirits. God alone. And that's what, that's what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote the church. And he said, look, I've, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. The secret is in God. So for me, you know, contentment sounds good. It sounds right. It sounds healthy. Um, but what does it look like, really? I mean, what does it look like in practical terms? How is that? How is it played out? This contentment played out in our lives. And I thought about it this week. And really, the only the only it seems to me the only way to describe it or identify it is. Or maybe it's not the only way, maybe it's the best way, is to contrast a life of contentment with a life of coveting. For example, a covetous person is constantly focusing on what they don't have. You have that, I don't have that, I don't have that. They're uh, uh, they're, They're always thinking and focusing on what they don't have. A contented person gives thanks for what they do have. See, it's the difference between grumbling and gratitude. A covetous person uh, resents while uh, a contented person rejoices. What do I mean? Well, think about it. How do you respond to the good fortune or success of, of people around you? You know, if a friend builds, uh, builds a new house or, or your brother-in-law makes a lucrative investment or a colleague of yours gets a promotion or a classmate gets an A on an exam, how do you react to that? How do you respond to that? If you're bent toward coveting, you're, you're going you're to be filled with, with, with envy and anger and resentment. You know, they got what you didn't get. And you're not going to be able to celebrate with them or for them. You just won't. But if you're contented, then in honesty, you can say to the person, man, I hope you enjoy that home. It is beautiful. Or you can say, congratulations on that investment. It was brilliant. Or to your colleague, hey, all the best in your new position, you earned it. Or to your classmate, great job on the exam. See, contentment is expressed through rejoicing in the successes of others, not resenting them. Another difference between coveting and contentment is is that a covetous person dreams of taking. A contented person dreams of sharing. 
You know, a selfish, envious, greedy life clutches onto all that it can. It holds onto it. But a contented life is generous and releases what it has for the sake of others. And then finally, a covetous person sees only what is. A contented person envisions what will be. In other words, the former lives with a limited temporal perspective, you know, kind of obsessed with the here and the now. The latter lives with an eternal perspective, envisioning what is to come. And remember, Jesus said to his followers, what? He said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin can't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Look, for me, it all really comes down to this, that as God's people, as followers of Christ, we are not to let our vision of life and meaning and purpose get clouded by greed and envy, shameless consumerism, and a relentless pursuit of more and more stuff. Instead, we're to keep a clear view of what is most important, what is eternal in value, and that's people and the mission of reaching them. And given those contrasts that we just ran through, I mean, where, where do you see yourself in all that? You know, how do you see yourself? Generally speaking, are you more focused on what you don't have, what others have? So you're, you're, you're just, you're focused on that, what I don't have, or are you focused on what you do have? Are you grumbling, or are you grateful? Do you resent the success of others, or can you rejoice with them? And be glad for them. Is your dream to take or is your dream to share? And it's not just a dream, you actually do it. You give generously. I mean, a generous life is a contented life. It is. And when you look at things, do you simply see what is? Or do you envision, you have a greater vision for what will be? Think about that. Those are serious questions. Think about them. In fact, I, I encourage you, I would challenge you to sit down today, tomorrow, this week sometime. Sit down with someone you trust, you know, a close friend, life group member, spouse, significant other. Sit down with someone you know, someone you trust, and ask them, do I seem like a contented person? If so... Why? What, what, is, what is it that you see? And if not, why? <laughs> what is it that you see? And then be open to whatever the truth may be. And be prepared to adjust accordingly. And really, I was thinking about, what, what better time are you to do this? You know, we're, we're just a couple of weeks out from the holiday season, kicking into full gear when in, an America, when in America expectations are high, entitlement runs rampant, consumerism inflames envy, which fuels our covetous nature, and all of that ends up just robbing us of any sense of peace and rest. And it seems that if we hope to truly be present in the moment with those we love, and celebrate the season with genuine joy and happiness, choosing contentment has to be part of the equation. It has to be part of the equation. May God grant us the strength and courage to make that choice. 
Let's pray. Our Father, uh, it's easy to look at our culture and uh, criticize the consumerism and the avarice and the, um, the greed and all of it, but to be honest, those things exist in each of us to one degree or another. And they're not new things. They're not just 21st century American things. You know, to Tocqueville saw them in 1835 they existed in the lives of people. But even back, way back, the dawn of creation, even within the context of paradise, man and woman fell to the temptation of discontentment and envy and made poor choices accordingly. And we've reaped the benefits We've reaped the results, really, the consequences of those choices. And they last right up until now. Humanity hasn't changed. And I pray that you'd give us the courage to face that reality. And I pray, God, that you would um, help us to be honest about where we are in our journey. With our expectations, feelings of entitlement, how we handle all that you've given us, whether we're content and generous or not. Because we can't fool you. You know the truth. And so we, we, we acknowledge you even now. We need, we need you, God. We need, we need your healing. We need your rescue. We need your forgiveness. We need hope. And that hope comes in Jesus alone. So be with us and teach us and guide us and strengthen us to be the kind of people you've called us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That is a beautiful song, you know, and um, I've, been, I've been singing it and listening to it all week. Uh, Donnie brought it in and we were talking about it and there are a couple lines in the song that really stood out to me uh, as I thought through the morning. The one is, uh, my soul needs a rescue. Boy, that's an understatement. Um, and that's true for all of us. We are by nature selfish, greedy. Uh, we're just broken. We're so broken. And um, but the message of Christmas, we're preparing for the holidays, the message of Christmas is that in our brokenness, we don't have to strive to find God. It's not about us working hard to find God. God has come to find us in Jesus. That's the good news. <laughs> That's the good news. He has come to find us, to forgive us, to heal us, and by grace, grant us life everlasting. And then the other, the other line of the song is our, our hope is in the hands of God, essentially. Our hope rests in God's hands. And I think, I think that the, the anxiety of so many people today as we look at the election, we're so, we are so revved up about it. But I'm going to say it again. On Wednesday morning, the sun's coming up. God's in control. And we still have to decide, are we going to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves? And we love ourselves a lot. Are we going to do that? Because that's what matters most. And I hope we'll say yes to it. The hope, our hope, the hope of our world, the hope of our nation, the hope of our culture rests not in politicians, not in governments. It rests in Jesus.
keep that in mind this week. Uh, quick thing. Um, so a couple of the books that we keep referencing in the series uh, are available if you're interested in the Resource Center. We just wanted you to make sure you had access to them. Anxious by Amy Simpson, great book. And then uh, uh, Present Over Perfect by Shauna Nyquist. Just to let you know, we still have copies out there if you'd like one. Uh, they're helpful tools. And then um, I want to encourage you to come back next week. We're going to take a look at something Jesus says uh, that I think uh, particularly um, relates to preparing ourselves for the holiday season. So uh, I hope you can come back and be with us next Sunday. Why don't you stand? Let me, let me pray for us as we dismiss. And now, Father, I pray that as we leave this place, that we would have a true and deep sense of contentment because of all that you've given us, because of all that you've done for us and what we have in Jesus. Ultimately, Lord, that's what matters. May we be happy about that. Maybe we, may we be at peace because of it. And may we live our lives in such a way that we point people to you, the God who loves them and the Savior who has come for them. And now may your, your hand of grace and peace and rest be on your church. Um, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.